Each episode of Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain with Dr. Ruth Allen is for educational and demonstration purposes only. The information shared in each episode should not be interpreted as medical advice. This episode should not be used to self-diagnose or self-treat any health, medical or physical condition. Do not use this episode to avoid going to your healthcare professional or to replace the advice they give you. Consult with a trusted healthcare professional before doing anything contained in this episode. If you have any questions or concerns, please contact www.ruthmaryallen.com forward slash connect. Welcome to the show, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. I am super excited to be joined by the absolutely wonderful, really inspiring Harold Walter Asman. Harold, welcome to the show. Hello, Ruth. Thanks for having me. (laughs) You're most welcome. And I know we're streaming live across YouTube, LinkedIn and Facebook Um, So I'm really excited to have this discussion with you because it's such an important topic, a chance for happiness and the upcoming London Mental Health Week that you have um, pioneered uh, into existence, which is such an important week for so many people who are really struggling in this space. So I'm, I'm so pleased we get this opportunity to talk about it before the launch of London Mental Health Week and also the foundation that you founded, which is a Chance for Happiness Foundation. So super thank you for coming on the show, because I know we've had so many wonderful conversations <laughs> before this one. So I'm looking forward to a, to a, a very enlightening uh, conversation with you today. So do I. <laughs> so before Go we right start, in. I would love to know what you are passionate about in life right now. Well, that's very uh, simply said. Um, about 20 years ago, I had a burnout, which uh, taught me that I can only work in things that I can truly believe in anymore. Mm-hmm. I said that to a friend of mine who is also a coach and a trainer, and she smiled and she said she had never heard that before, before but she's going to use it in the future. I can only work in things I can truly believe in anymore. And uh, after several years of having a real hard time with that burnout, to say a complete burnout makes no sense because burnt out always means complete. Mm -hmm. And it was a very strange experience because I had seen a documentary about this being the manager's disease several years before. And uh, I thought it was very interesting. I listened very intently. I did a lot of nature documentaries in my professional life as well for Austrian television, the BBC, Discovery Channel. So this was an interesting documentary. Mm -hmm. And it just basically interviewed managers who had earned a whole lot of money and been in very powerful positions. And then all of a sudden, very quickly, and without them being aware of it, burning out, like from one day to another. But I couldn't really make a lot of sense of it until mm-hmm. three, four days late, uh, years later. It happened to me, 
and then I knew exactly what they were talking about. And if I had to describe it uh, since, I would say that you are a dead spirit and a live body. Wow. In other words, the, the body is still alive, but your emotions and your um, the true self, your soul, we would normally say, has gone, died. So you wake up every morning feeling dead, and yet you're still alive. Mm -hmm. And that, in my case, wasn't over in a couple of months. It took almost seven years wow. for me to be my former self again. But then again, that's wrong too, because once you've recovered from cancer, for example, you'll never be the same. Mm -hmm. And once you've had a real burnout, you'll never be the same. You, you'll never be back at your old self. And from then on and into the future, I have to be very careful not to be overworking myself because I tend to lose myself in the work. I, mm -hmm. I love doing what I'm doing, mm -hmm. but I, I have since learned to take note of the symptoms and to uh, take a little bit of my speed back when I feel that I'm getting close to where I never want to be again. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, this is what today's uh, conversation is all about. I think this also obviously had a lot of bearing on my family. My wife and I have six children, all with each other. I always need to say this because I know that having been married for 40 years makes us sort of dinosaurs in today's uh, society. And having more than two or three children, uh, likewise. But we wanted it this way, and it worked out just fine. Uh -huh. uh, the children learned very early on to take responsibility for each other. So it's really not that big of a job as most people fear it could be. Yeah. And it, it did, I'm sure it did take a toll on my family because our daughter Lisa, for example, she was only five or six years old at the time. Mm-hmm when her dad changed dramatically mm -hmm. into a person that she hadn't known before. Mm -hmm. and, and how did you change, you know, for, cause I think it's, I think this is a really important topic and I know we've got so much to discuss, but I think it, burnout is such uh, it, shall we say it can be quite common and it, it catches people by surprise. And you mentioned that, you know, you, you were no longer your former self and you could never go back to your former self. But what was your former self like before it happened, if you wouldn't mind sharing? And obviously your former self drove you into the space that resulted in burnout. And how did you shift in the con context of your emotional well-being, your physical state, and your spiritual state as you were going on that healing journey? I know that's a lot to answer in, in one go, but could we just start with no what problem. you were like before your daughter was around five, you know, before she turned five, as it were, Lisa? I just wanted to uh, finish my uh, line of thought before, because that's important for the next uh, step of this conversation. Um, I was not Lisa's and her brother's and my wife's former dad anymore. Mm -hmm. 
And when Lisa, at the age of 18, ended her life after periods of two, three years of having been se severely mobbed without asking for help from us or anyone else, because she feared that if she talked about it, it would only make things worse. Mm -hmm. I said, well, of course, it's going to make things worse. Things always get worse first before they get better. But as a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, you cannot hope to deal with mobbing of that uh, sort that even adults couldn't. And you cannot sort it out for yourself. Mm. So we, we're going to have to talk to your headmaster. We're going to have to talk to your teachers. We're going to ha have to talk to everyone uh, and let them know that what they're doing is absolutely wrong and that this needs to stop. So... But the damage was already done. I didn't know at the time, but mm. uh, something had already broken in her soul. And just having come from this experience of me, so to, so to speak, having been broken also, today, in hindsight, obviously, the longer her uh, leaving is in the past, it's nine years by now, uh, and the more time I have to think about things and to put things into perspective, the more I realize how we're all interconnected and how the experiences of one person always have an influence on those that are closest to us. It's mm. like when several years ago, my wife was uh, diagnosed with possibly having breast cancer, which her mom died of in a very painful way. Um, we all had breast cancer. The whole family did. I mean, we all felt that you know, this was a grave danger of, of losing our mom, our, my wife. And uh, the mere thought that this could happen um, left traces within us. Mm. After, after several weeks, after several months, we found that this was only a, a, a thought that did not, um, that wasn't confirmed by further examinations, but nevertheless, for a couple of weeks, we all felt that we had breast cancer and that maybe mm -hmm. we could die. Mm -hmm. So coming back to what you asked before, how did I change? Mm -hmm. um, I have always been a very motivated, um, change the world for a better place person. Um, mostly because I come from a family background, especially my mom, that um, sort of had this written on her forehead. She, she was extremely talented. She was extremely loving. She was very motivated. She, she wanted to help everyone. If she saw a drunkard in the street, with soiled clothing and, and, and stinking, she would invite him to come back to our home and uh, let him have a bath and wash his clothes. Wow. Feed him and give him some money. And I still remember at a very early uh, stage, my, you know, when I was very young, my dad complaining about it. You know, what in the, in the world was she doing? Um, and it could be dangerous, but she couldn't care. She couldn't <laughs> care less. If she felt that she needed to help someone, she, di she did. It's yeah. not like she, she ran around with a Red Cross cap every day. But whenever she was in a position where she needed to 
be active, to get active in the in the helping of somebody else, she did. That, and that's what she was known for. So I grew up with a mom and also a pretty motivated dad that way. And I had also a, maybe I've seen a couple of Hollywood movies too many. My wife and I always joke about that. <laughs> and not only, not only in terms of personal relationships and, and, and things, but also, you know, the outlook of li on life that Hollywood, in a way, very intentionally spread after particularly World War II. Mm -hmm. Because all around the world, people were in depression and they needed something to uh, build them up again, to give them hope for the future. And so we had all these wonderful films that were normally far away from reality, but showed a world the way it could be. So maybe I've uh, watched a couple of those, too many, because uh, in a way, I think I was also blue-eyed in, in terms of changing the world for the better and mm -hmm. working together and, uh, and sharing the workload for, for the better future of everyone. Until when I had my burnout, I realized, and that was part of it, mm -hmm. that that is not the case. That many people, I wouldn't say, couldn't care less. But in a positive way, I would say that they're so busy trying to halfway balance what they already have, that they do not want to get involved in anything beyond themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, today we have... I know this can be controversial, but it's my point of view anyway. Today we have this modern word like we have for many conditions that were unacceptable 20, 30 years ago. Now today we have very acceptable and very smart sounding words. We have self-care. Yeah. And as, I'm, as I'm looking around and as I'm surrounded by people who are using the word self-care all the time, and coming from a burnout, I know exactly how important that is. But when people start using self-care as a cover-up for egotism and egocentricity and me, 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 it makes me sick. Yeah. It really makes me angry inside and I have to uh, sort of keep working on myself, being kind and benevolent and mm -hmm. understanding because... I feel, and this contributes a lot to our modern-day situation concerning mental health, there's basically, with most people, there's nothing wrong with them. But what we are missing is a human way of dealing with each other. Mm. It starts with please and thank you and can I open the door. It starts with being... Uh, um, trusting, it starts with being um, helpful to each other. It starts with all of these little things that we should have learned at home or maybe in church. But somehow these things are not the norm anyway, anymore. And then we come with very modern terms like self-care, when actually what we mean is that we're basically concerned about ourselves and ourselves, and ourselves, and then some. So, coming back, realizing all of this, and that I was surrounded by a whole bunch of people 
that I wasn't just disappointed in, but they really let me down in so many aspects. It also had to do with uh, me and my whole family leaving um, a church, a religion that we had believed in for all of our lives. So that was also a, uh, a spiritual paradigm that we had to say goodbye to. Was this before burnout? Before you that, that, that led to the burnout. It was, okay. it was, was a culmination of everything in my life that I thought was safe and it wasn't. Oh, okay. So when you asked me, what did I learn? What I learned luckily was to not give up any of the values and any of the aspirations and the goals that I had before, but it made me look more carefully at myself, mm -hmm. how much I can actually do. And it made me also look more carefully at the capacities and capabilities of others. These days, I often find myself saying, in my 63 years of living on this planet, I think by now I've done my homework. And always having been in the people business, through film production and being author as well, always my work revolving about the human being and how we work. I have learned to read people. So when I look at them, when I meet them, I mean, it's a fact that we all have this capacity within 30 seconds at the longest. We know more or less who we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. The rest is only a confirmation. <laughs> but once we learn to uh, read people better, then we can come to a point where we can still do things together, but we don't have wrong expectations about what they will do and what they won't do because we have, we have seen them from the beginning. Yeah. And that helps me tremendously not to sort of walk like in a swamp where I don't know what the next step is going to be. Am I going to sink or am I going to be on firm ground? It still happens, but it happens less than it did before. Mm -hmm. So I did, luckily I did not become a jaded person, but I, I am still more tired of course than I was before. Mm -hmm. But I think that also has to do with age. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just a bit less gun ho and more look where you're going and look who you are inviting to follow mm -hmm. and join you. And I think that's so important. And I'd love to go back to your comment around self-care because I, I really do believe that it has utterly shifted, um, uh. as you mentioned, into <laughs> something that can be quite egotistical. I think um, it's so cute in a way. Yeah. But I also think like self-care um, historically from our tribal days, um, is around leveraging the community to support you. And because we have, I and this is my view, and we can debate about this, of course, um, but because we've become quite insular in ourselves, we forget to, um, we internalize everything. And it's, it's kind of like putting a shield around ourselves to protect ourselves uh, and saying, no, self-care is, I have to look after me. Whereas historically, self-care was 
please can you help look after me because I need support. I love that point. This is why this is why I like discussing things with you because you're so smart. <laughs> no, truly, I emotionally smart. This is emotional intelligence. Oh, so self-care self-care you're saying is actually being able to ask for help. Can you please help me take care of myself? Yeah. And then it becomes a communal thing. It's not, oh, I have to take care of myself first and I have to be in completely total best shape. I have to be the perfect person. And then only can I help other people. Or, or then that. only can I ask for help if I can't do it myself. Which is, which is a state that will never happen, right? I mean, yeah. if, 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 if that is the benchmark, like if I have to wait until I'm really my very best self, I might as well wait forever because that's never going to happen. The most productive, the most helpful, the most loving and kind people I know, and this is a fact that not only I am saying, but this is knowledge from other philosophers and, uh, and authors of great works as well. Uh, one teacher is supposed to have said to his student one day, when the student said that he wasn't attending because he wasn't feeling well, the professor said, well, my dear student, uh, the time will come when you will find out the most of the grandest and most important and most historic things in life were all achieved by people who didn't feel well. Yeah. And they <laughs> Abraham didn't just feel Lincoln well diagnosed for, with depression. <laughs> they didn't just feel well for a day, but some of them didn't feel well for a lifetime. And still they had to find a way to make use of the life that had been given them, flawed as it was. Because the alternative would have been, if they looked back from their deathbed, they would have had to say, okay, so I've went through all of the suffering, which never went away, and yet I let it keep that from my doing what I would have liked to do on this planet. Yeah. So even if we take baby steps, even if we crawl, even if sometimes we take a break for a couple of days or weeks, it doesn't matter as long as we continue on our journey, on that which makes us really happy, on that which we can truly and wholly believe in, then that's a great journey. Mm -hmm. And that is also the hero's journey for those who know what the hero's journey is. And for those who don't, just Google it. It's a wonderful way of storytelling that I've used a lot, that Hollywood has used a lot in the past 40 years. and the hero's journey basically means that you do not progress step by step from from A to B, and, and you you set out and you, eventually you reach your goal. Quite the contrary, it's a very <laughs> old, very wise, and age-old um, form of storytelling that the Greeks and and people before them have already used. Where when you set out, when the hero sets out. He or she is a fool, meaning they don't know how to get along in life. They don't know what to do with what they have, and they don't even know what their life's purpose is. And as soon as they leave their normal world, they don't go up, but they go down and down and down and ever more down until they reach the lowest point 
that you can possibly imagine within you. And that's where they find a treasure. That's where they find out who they really are. That's where they wrest that treasure from the dragon who cannot do anything with that money anyway, but still he insists, or she dragon insists, that it's theirs and not yours. But it's actually your inheritance. It's your birthright. And you need to wrest that from the dragon. And you need to get back on the road, back into normal life. And as you do, you find out that you come back exactly to where you started from, only one step higher. So it's not a circle, but it's a spiral. And mm -hmm. you, it seems like you're going in a circle, but when you're back where you started from, you have taken one level higher. Mm -hmm. and, then and then the whole journey continues again. You start all over. You have a new, you have a new uh, challenge. You have a new something that you want to achieve, and then you go down and down and down again. And it's all in a, in a, in an attempt of life or the universe or God showing us who we really are. That's all life is all about. It's about nothing else. The greatest yeah. gift that we can take out of this life and back to wherever we came from is that we know maybe not fully, but to a certain extent, much better than we did before, who we are. Who am I? Yeah, yeah. I think that's so important. And I love the analogy of the treasure. You have to dig deep or go down very deep in order to find the treasure because that's where the diamonds, that's where the gold is buried, it, you know, in traditional sense. And it's really dark and it can really be difficult and really uncomfortable. And a lot of us have been in a very dark, difficult, uncomfortable place. But you rarely get someone who is a digger of diamonds, as it were, who does it by themselves and gets out of that deep, dark tunnel by themselves. We always need somebody to support us, to light the flame, to light the light uh, and to guide us through that tunnel, whether that's the person that's created the light that we, we've got on our helmet or whether that's the person that's got the tracks in place to show us the way. There's so many people that we can use if if we know to ask the question can you help me can you help me out of here and then we learn the right way out of that tunnel and we learn how we can dig our way out of other really deep dark situations too and, and i'd love to dive into the word happiness actually because i think there is a very common theme on happiness and I feel that happiness itself has changed its meaning over the years and we we tend to have internalized happiness as well and said that you can only generate it you can't get it I'd love your thoughts on that well my thoughts have always been and then I'll get into what they are today because, you know, everything is a progression. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but even as a teenager, my thoughts have been that life is really quite simple. Very simple structure. Not easy to live, but simple. Uh, and I think it has to be this way because if we are talking about any sort of God, 
if he or she made life so difficult that we first need to have a PhD like you do, or any other form of lengthy and academic education to even halfway come to terms with life, that would be mean, that would be evil, right? So since we're saying that, saying that God or our idea of God is positive, is good, that means that life has to be structured in such a way that everyone can understand what's required of them. Mm -hmm. uh, which, which I think is part of the reason why so many functions of our body are actually automatic. We don't have to think about them because if we had to, we would probably sometimes f forget how to how to beat our heart in other life-threatening situations. So in order for us to have the kind of growing adventure that I think we're here for, mm -hmm. lots of what makes it possible, including this amazing biological body, has to be an automatic. Otherwise, we, 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 we'd be... Uh, overloaded with too many things, having to do with too many things and concentrating on too many things all at once. We'd be and in think, constant burnout. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and most of us are on the verge of, of uh, you know, using up our last energy anyway, but that's a different point that maybe we come to uh, a little bit later. Why in the world where most of us have almost everything that we could hope for, which our great-grandparents fought for and actually died for sometimes, why we still are so incredibly unhappy and why we still in some way feel so threatened as if um, we are in constant flight mode, mm -hmm. which is in itself is a very interesting question, why that is. Because we have no reason to be there, but yet we are. And I'm not making light or fun of the stress level, incredible stress level that we all have, because mm -hmm. it's a fact, it's a truth. Mm -hmm. And there are reasons for that. And just to make this point short, it's not our fault. We are not responsible for what is happening at the moment. And we're just trying to keep up and we're just trying to cope. And it's using almost all of our energy, just coping. Mm. So, uh, yes, but coming back to what you said before, which was what? Happiness. Happiness. Absolutely. So what, what would you say Even about happiness? Teenager, Even as a teenager, I thought that we were never promised that life would be easy. It doesn't say that anywhere. In fact, that's a very modern invention. For previous generations, hundreds and thousands of years, we, we don't find that anywhere in scripture, in myth, in, in, in legends. And I tend to know, I'm not the expert, but I tend to know quite a bit about it because uh, for various projects that I was writing, I did a lot of research about mythology and the earliest. And I love language and I, I love writing and so it's close that you would do also that we dive into history and look at the very earliest signs of of human storytelling and uh, all of these other wonderful arts that we have developed as human beings 
and nowhere can you find any reference that life is easy yeah or that or that the creator promised that it would be easy what is promised is that it is worthwhile what is said is that it's worth the price to pay mm -hmm. but it is a challenge it will require all of what we are mm -hmm. to have a successful life no one is going to be spared and it's not really that god or some other force is testing us or that we are going through some kind of uh, selection process but it's really uh anyone who has seen matrix knows what i mean it's it's like a computer game it's like a software that allows us to test ourselves to look mm -hmm. at ourselves to find out who we really are not who we thought we were but who we are in the end of the day and we can only find that out by being challenged and by throwing ourselves into challenging situations that can also be dangerous at times but it doesn't matter because if you're always safe, if you always stay home in your emotional living room, so to speak, uh, there is no growth in that. Mm -hmm. There's no unfolding. So what is happiness? I think, I don't want to get into the wonderful movie, but you, you everyone can check it out. <laughs> Hector or The Search for Happiness. Wonderful British movie. I think it's about five or six years old. And one of the closing scenes is that true happiness is when you are sad and anxious and happy all at the same time. Ah. That is true joy. That's when you are fully alive. That's when every part of your brain is in motion. Because notwithstanding that, that you are fearful, at the same time you are overjoyed. At the same time you are moved to tears. At the same time you want to laugh. And I can see from your smile that you know that feeling. And I'll yeah, hope. because you get it when, you're a, you know, when you first become a parent. <laughs> Yes, it's so painful the process, especially. You don't know what to do first, right? <laughs> yeah. Should you should you complain? Should you do fall into your bed and just sleep for a couple of days? Should you laugh? Should you cry? Should you dance? What you what should you be doing? That is happiness. That is overjoyed. As I was saying the other day, one of the 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 cultural heritage um, jewels of humanity. And I, it's not just me saying that. Is a song, a psalm, included in the Old Testament, and it's attributed to King David, but nobody knows whether somebody else wrote it or he wrote it. Uh, at that time, of course, kings used to be poets as well, but uh, it could also be that it was just sung and danced at his court, and. The, the, the fascinating thing about a psalm is that it's not only a, a, a piece of poetry, it's not only just a song, it's also a dance. And sometimes I try to envision, how would you possibly dance to this? 
but almost everybody knows it. They have heard it, but maybe they have heard it in a dry and in a very uninspiring church setting and some kind of uh, well-meaning preacher reading it without really giving it the kind of energy that it should have. But you all know it. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. Yeah. I shall not want. He leadeth me um, through green pastures. Um, I don't know it by heart, but Google it, check it out. It's so beautiful. And one of the most important uh, aspects in that song, in that dance, to me has always been uh, the place where it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. And then it goes on to this famous line, my cup runneth o'er. That is happiness. When our cup runs over. I've always explained that when you imagine a godlike being, he or she is so generous. I mean, nature is always so um, overflowing in anything nature does. And if nature is a product of God or who we uh, envision God to be, it makes absolute sense to me that when God fills your cup, it will always run over, right? Yeah. He can't yeah. do it any, any other way. I mean, it's not like it's going to be very careful about not wasting any drop. No, it's you know, have some and have some more and have some more until our feeble body, our little human ex- uh, existence really runs over because we are just being filled with something that goes beyond our own capacities. That I love that. Happiness. I love that. And I'd love to go back to the dance bit because I can really relate to what you said mm. in the context of the dance. And that there's the Lord of the Dance song as well. It was, I danced in the morning when the world began. I danced in the moon and the stars and the sun. We had it played at my dad's funeral, actually. So I don't want to say it too much. I'm going to cry and be happy I and joyful. The Lord of the Dance, <laughs> Lord of the Dance, yeah. But when you mentioned happiness is sadness and anxiety and being happy all at the same time, it's like our emotions are doing a dance together that is beneficial for us. And I think it, to a certain degree today, we kind of look at our emotions separately. You know, like, oh, I have to be happy, but I can't be sad. I have to be anxious, but I can't be um, driven, if that makes sense. And, and we, but they, they dance together. Our emotions do a dance. And when we are dancing together with our emotions, we have an enormous amount of power to feel happiness. Yes. But if, if we're not allowing our emotions to dance together, and this comes back to the importance of community, <laughs> um, then we're working against ourselves. And there our emotions start to conflict with each other and fight with each other. And that's when our life can get really difficult, particularly if we are turning down some of the emotions that we have because we want to notice the other ones and we're not too interested 
in all of them and understanding that dance that's going on constantly. So I'd, totally I'd love agree. your thoughts on that. Totally agree. I mean, <laughs> we are totally allowed and it's our perfect right to uh, define life and to define what's important in whichever way we want. And having been born exactly in 1960, and really appreciated watching my older sisters going through all the 60s stuff. Mm -hmm. I was too young then, so I could only marvel at what they were doing and what their friends were doing and the rock records they were buying and the and the you know the clothes they were wearing and stuff like that. And by the time I was 10, that was 1970, most of that was gone already. <laughs> very unfortunate i mean not in the sense that we should have kept everything to an iota what people thought about and how they tried to break the mold back then but i really wished that that process would have gone on and it didn't we got stuck in a mindset of the 60s and we now have uh, 2023 and we know full well that most people my age and older who have grown up in the 60s are still sitting in the chief's chairs and they're behind the buttons and they're behind all the levers and they basically dictate what's up and what's down and what's left and what's right. And they are still trying to solve 2023 problems with the mindset of the previous century of the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Makes sense that that will, won't work. Makes sense that this also contributes to the uh, catastrophic situation that we're in right now because some people just do not want to understand what's happening, that uh, the pressure of life is increasingly becoming unbearable. Mm -hmm. And if they don't want to change, that's fine, but they should not prevent everything else and everyone else to change. Mm -hmm. Because they're not going to be around anymore in 10 or 20 years. But our children will. And if we insist that things can only be done in the way that we think they can be done, then life is just going to have to teach us a lesson, which is a good one, that every generation has its go. We will all die. And that's a very good thing, because if we didn't have to, we would probably resist. And that would mean that there is never any progress on this planet. So every yeah. wave, every generation has its goal. And then it's time for it to move on. Please move on. Uh, thanks for what you did. Thanks for what you didn't do. So you left something for us to do. And uh, goodbye and adieu. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying this because the planet is the way it is. Nature is the way it is. And what we are experiencing is what we have made it. It's our mindset. It's our values. It's what we think really matters is important. That's what we have put into the world as a culture, as a society. And that's mostly what we are suffering from. Yeah. It's our own shadow areas. So this is why I said before, I always try to point out that in David's psalm, it doesn't say 
I walk through the valley of death because earth life isn't the valley of death. But this is a valley of the shadow of death. Mm -hmm. Right? It's a kind of spiritual and emotional death that we can experience here or that awaits us if we don't hasten up a little bit, if we don't wake up a little bit, and if we don't make better use of the time that we are given, because it's it's running, it's it's going to run out. We're not going to live uh, forever. Mm -hmm. And the thing is not how can I live for as long as possibly possible, but the question is, since my time is limited, what will I have done with my life that I can really be proud of? Yeah. And I don't have to be a millionaire, and I don't have to be uh, a celebrity or any other of those sort of surface things. It can be a very simple, it can be a very um, humble life because mm -hmm. only I will know what I started with, what I made with the toolbox that I was given, and what I will look back on with a smile when I'm done. Mm -hmm. And it can even be, you know, if we speak about it symbolically, it can even be a, um, a wreath of flowers, like uh, especially the girls used to do when I was small. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they would give us boys one too. And mm -hmm. so we would run around with these uh, flower wreaths of uh, bright yellow, screaming yellow dandelions on our head. And they were like crowns and we were part of nature and we were the prince and the princess of the world. Yeah. So it yeah. can be something as simple as that. I'm not and I think that's so important though, isn't it? That we I'm kind not... of think we need to make it out as a big thing. No. We have to leave a massive footprint somewhere. No. Again, and it doesn't have to be that way. That's, that's the magazine culture. Yeah. That's the television culture, which then went on into the social media culture. But it, these are all our own inventions. These are all our own doings. And I'm yeah. not even saying that that social media is at fault. Social media is only a channel. The question is, who feeds the channel? Yeah. And do I have to actually believe everything that's said? So if somebody say, claims that they're only taking care of themselves, that they're only engaging in self-care, do I have to believe that? Mm -hmm. I don't, do I? Mm -hmm. Something, sometimes some of these um, behaviors are just plain egotism. That's all. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter how you call it. It's still the same. I, I agree. And I think self-care doesn't always constitute self-awareness. No. You know, they're very different things. Right. Um, it's, like, I, it's like you knock on my door and I say, go away. I need to self-care today. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'd love. I'd love to. I know we had this conversation um, in a lovely restaurant in London, um, which was just beautiful food, and um, it, you were great company. And we talked about what is the de definition of trauma, <laughs> and uh, and therein came um, the discussion about I have a wound. Yes, and I know this is what you'll be talking about as part of the closing um, aspect of London Mental Health Week, which you've established, a chance for happiness. I'd love it if you could 
dive into <laughs> that topic a bit more because I think it's such an important topic. Well, after the, um, the death of our daughter, Lisa, mm -hmm. it took us about two years to regain our bearings and to decide what we were going to do with this renewed experience. Because uh, my wonderful mother, who I talked about before, she didn't just have a burnout, but she also ended her life when I was 20. And I cannot go into the details why, but let me say that she was far from being a coward. She was far from taking the easy way out. And if anyone wanted to walk in her shoes for just a few days or for even several pages of a book that we are writing, go right ahead. I won't stop you. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's enough to say that she just had a very difficult childhood. She was a, a post-war child. She, uh, she grew up with a single mom who left her with well-meaning but not so well-functioning farmers out in the country because she couldn't uh, look after her daughter herself. Um, she was raped by a soldier in the aftermath of the war while she said her mother was watching after which experience she uh, tried to kill herself already when she was 16 by drinking acid. She suffered from incredible migraine headaches all of her life. Mm -hmm. Nothing happened, helped. Medicine wasn't that far then and it still isn't that far yet. Uh, she was given strange looking medication that was like shooting at sparrows with cannons. She, um, she lost my older brother when he was four or five years old because she had been given me medication during her pregnancy with him that she shouldn't have been given. That was the time of the, the Contagan children. My brother wasn't like that, but he was still also severely disabled. He never started to walk. He never started to talk. Social workers, social service in Austria persuaded my mom to put him away into professional care, hours away from home. She was very reluctant to do this because she felt that it was the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. But she was at that time, she was hardly capable of taking care of the two children that she already had. So she agreed. Only three or four months later, my brother had died, wow. which she could never forgive herself for not having trusted her gut feelings. There was not much that she could have done, but, you know, it would really make a very heartbreaking movie to just look at her life story. And I know that there are millions of people out there that have very heartbreaking stories. I think it was Brenya Brown that said uh, that um, everybody has a story that is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And when you know more about their story, it will bring you to your knees. Yeah. The mere fact that we don't know much about each other doesn't mean that we all have a story that can bring somebody else to their knees if they knew about it. Mm -hmm. So fast forward, 
I was 20 when my mother decided that enough was enough. I was um, 45 when my older sister decided that she, in a way, wanted to uh, join her mom on her path, almost like Orpheus going into the underworld mm -hmm. to see where his love was. Um, I was 54 when Lisa decided that she wanted to no longer continue because this earth life wasn't what uh, she really wanted to live for 80 or 90 years. Mm -hmm. And several years later, my youngest, my younger brother followed who already had a, a very severe trauma from the death of our mother mm -hmm. when he was 16. She was so loved and she was so um, uh, appreciated particularly by her children, but by my father as well, that I always say she was like the, the center of a wheel. And when you take that center out, eventually all the spokes fall out too. Mm. And eventually the wheel no longer has any support and it just breaks. I've learned back then that usually it's the mother and even if she's not considered a good mother, but it's usually the mothers that keep the family together. Mm. And the fathers, as hard as they try, they cannot compensate for the loss of a mother. They just mm. are not as good in keeping a family alive and intact once the mother is gone. And that's how it's been in our family. Mm -hmm. So two years after Lisa's uh, death, we decided that Enough was enough as well, at least in my case. This subject of suicide kept knocking on my door throughout my life. So maybe I have something to do with it in a closer way than I thought before. Because before I only thought this is a private uh, affair. I need mm -hmm. to somehow deal with it. I never had any help with it. And painful experiences always over and over again, losing the circle of friends, the, the support of neighbors and all of that, because you have to remember Austria is still a very Catholic um, society. It's not that people are Catholic believers, but in their mentality, it is still ingrained over hundreds of years that when you dare to end your life, you will go straight to hell. Mm. And seeing a family where this has happened more often somehow appears that maybe we're all weird or uh, mad or uh, there's something wrong with us or maybe we're even bad and evil mm. so this experience of being alone after a, a painful death of a loved one it kept happening over and over again until i said okay this is enough First of all, it keeps knocking on my door. Secondly, I am not just going to be quiet anymore. I cannot bring anyone back who has ended their life. I am also not so conceited to think that I can stop anyone from ending their life if they wish to, because they have a perfect right to do so. Mm -hmm. Life is a gift. It's not a business. If there are strings attached, then it's not a gift. But if it is a gift, then we are as difficult that is for those who remain 
we are at perfect liberty to decide when we wish to go. It does nowhere does it say that we have to wait for the natural expiration date of our body. There comes a time where the soul, where the spirit is just as depleted and tired as a body can be. Mm -hmm. And as a society, this is something we're going to talk more about in the future. We don't want to encourage people to uh, end their lives. But what we want to do is we want to encourage to society to think twice about how much of our business that is to get involved in somebody else's deeply personal decisions. Do we even have a right to that, to, to do that? It would require so much knowledge that we can possibly never have. Most people can usually not explain their own lives and they have actually lived it. So how could somebody else make a judgment about your life that you couldn't even explain because you've lived it yourself? Mm. Right? I couldn't. I couldn't make a judgment about what is right or wrong for you. And so if you think that it's time to return your gift, then it's time to return your gift. And I have to come up with the, the love and the humility and the respect and the thankfulness, not for what I think you could have still done, but what I know you have already done in the time that you were here. Yeah. And that will just have to do for a while. Mm -hmm. It's not my role to have asked for more just because I wanted to have kept you so that I don't have to grow. Mm. And that's what what I'm com coming around to. That's what I felt at that time when we founded the Chance for Happiness Foundation is that we need to learn to respect those decisions. But most of all, we need to help those who remain to come to terms and to grow with the situation. We need to respect them from the alienation, from being left alone, and from not knowing what to do, that their surroundings are sometimes inflicting on them. And I know that there are some cultures and surroundings where this works pretty well. But I also know from my own experience that there are cultures where you're utterly left alone. Mm. I, and, I, I, and, then we, and then we decided that it makes no sense to spend a lot of energy on the very thing that you want to avoid. So we didn't call this initiative uh, a foundation for the prevention of suicide or something like that. Because that was not our main aim. We felt that this voluntary exit starts with losing the happiness and the joy in life. So it makes a lot of sense to concentrate on that. And I, that was seven years ago, and I was happy at that time to find out that there is even now a, an academic field about the research of happiness, happiness research. And we said, yeah, that's our first point. It's uh, happiness in parentheses, um, happiness research. Mm -hmm. Secondly, anti-mobbing initiatives. Thirdly, suicide prevention. And fourth, 
um, grief counseling and uh, the support of orphaned parents at the beginning we said, but then we changed that to orphaned families because in Lisa's case, she had has five brothers and they were orphaned just as much as we were as parents. Yeah. So we have this four tire program and that basically follows the the experience, the life experience of our daughter. She loved She was terribly mobbed when she started talking about it. She was in therapy about half a year before she ended her life. She did not receive the proper help or assistance. In fact, they didn't even realize that she wanted to end her life. And then, of course, uh, the, the counseling, the grief counseling of bereaved families. Mm. That's what we've done for seven years. And it's always been our dream, so to speak, to not only have an annual conference with beautiful music and entertainment and wonderful robes and meeting people on a, on a high networking, high um, achievement level, because that's where obviously a lot of influence is. So if you want to change something in the world, that's where you go. And that's what we did. And it worked out very successfully. We proved that yes, you can have a brilliant evening, a gala evening on something like death and suicide. We weren't the only ones, of course. This had to be proven about cancer before. That used to be the C word, and taboo. You couldn't talk about it. Then came along uh, AIDS, HIV, AIDS. Same thing happened there. I, I live in Austria. The life ball in Vienna was a legend. Celebrities and uh, powerful people from around the world flew in every year to not celebrate HIV, but to celebrate life. And in the past seven years, we have celebrated not suicide and death, but the fact that we have known the people who have gone before us and that we are still surrounded by those who mean a lot to us right now wow. in an effort to celebrate life in a beautiful way. But one thing we haven't been able to achieve until this year in London, next week, we always wanted to uh, match the entertainment aspect with substantial information. Substantial information in terms of learning, in terms of exchange, and in terms of where, from a professional point of view, where do we want to go next year? And where do we see us as a planet collectively moving forward to? Because we, we uh, realize that even among professionals, there is not enough exchange. There's not enough imagination, so to speak, about what could be and what should be. At the same time, we are just coming out of COVID and the harrowing numbers of suicide around the world are only getting worse. It used to be uh, uh, every 40 seconds, someone on this planet decides that they want to go home. So again, 
These are not just sick people or there's something wrong with them. And every 40 seconds is only the people that succeed. It's about 20 times more that try and do not succeed. So while we're yeah. talking, every second and even shorter than that, someone decides that this life is really not for them any longer. Yeah. And we, we, we cannot, as a society, even from from a, an emotional standpoint, but also from a business standpoint, we cannot afford to go on like this. Every person that kills themselves, that ends their life, severely leaves an impact of on, I think, at least 20 people in their surroundings. Their productivity goes down, their sickness and leave rate goes up, and it takes them many, many years to come to terms with the trauma of having lost someone, not necessarily to death, but to a self-inflicted death. Yeah. And I think that's so important that you mention the trauma of it, because often we just focus on the grief aspect. <clears throat> and I think, you know, there's a huge amount of trauma associated with losing somebody suddenly um, and, and them choosing to, to, to go home, as you said. Um, especially when you least expect that to happen. And going back to your previous, uh, when we first started the conversation, is this un unexpected burnout that suddenly hits you. Um, and for many people, that may be planned, um, but for, for many others, it, it's just an instantaneous decision. I need to, this is my only way out of the pain that I'm experiencing, I can't escape it, I need to do something and this is the only option that I can find um, to stop experiencing the pain I'm in. Whether that's physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain or mental pain. And, and you know, you mentioned your mum, you know, she must have been in an ex exorbitant amount of pain with all of the trauma that she experienced. And that trauma stacks throughout generations. We're not just carrying the trauma we have in the here and now, we carry generational trauma um, with us, which we now know through epigenetics. Um, she, she has stuck around with us, it's fair to say, for mm -hmm. as long as she could possibly manage. Because if it hadn't been for her children, she would have left a long time sooner. Mm. And she waited in essence, until my brother was 16. But um, that was really in terms of her world and in terms of her paradigm, it was really the very last moment, the very last mm -hmm. minute. So, and since I've always been close to my mom and uh, bear in mind that I was in her womb already mm -hmm. when, uh, after she had lost uh, my older brother. So in a way, not only biologically, but emotionally, I am the, um, I'm the sequel of my mom's life. Lots of things that she went through, she never had to explain to me. I understood instantly. Yeah. And to this day, while I was very sad about her leaving, I was never sad about her death. What saddened me, and it still does to this day, is 
the amount of loneliness, the amount of grief and pain that she, and I'm not saying must have felt, I know that she has felt the culmination mm -hmm. of everything she, where she felt that she had failed, that led to her decision and to her dying moment. I am confident that very quickly after that, leaving the physical body, she saw things very differently and she could look back at her life and see all the wonderful and, and great, great things that she has achieved. But at that moment, it still pains me to imagine the kind of loneliness that someone can feel when they think that everything they've done was no good or it wasn't good enough. And this also motivates me to, to tell people whenever I can that uh, no one is a failure. We never fail. Either we win or we learn, but we don't lose. Yeah. That's, a, that's, that's another really unfortunate um, concept that has come around in the past 40 or 50 years. Yeah. It, it, it's just not true. And yet we are living by so many of these rules as if they were cut in stone. And even through arguing or discussing or sometimes even fighting, you cannot get some people off their set opinion that things are just so and like this and like that, which they think uh, life is all about. When it's not, it's all very changeable. And, and we, we all the perceive one. everything differently because we're different we, human we, beings. So everything is one, different. <laughs> exactly. We are the ones who can change the rules. Right? Yeah. It's like you can get, you can make up your mind tonight and you get up tomorrow, you have a fresh start. Thank goodness there's something like day and night. So every day is a new day. We yeah. can always start over. And if we start with a different set of values in the morning, we'll be surprised how that day turns out in a question of just a mere 10 or 12 hours. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th if I think we, that's so true, the day and night thing. If we only dare to be more creative with life, if we only dare to, to really make some mistakes, you know, Sir Ken Robinson has said about the modern school system that it basically is as bad as it is because it severely punishes every mistake. So that from early kindergarten, early childhood, we're all conditioned in such a way to, to by all means, avoid what could be considered a mistake. Not realizing that by doing that, we're making the greatest mistake already. And that is, we're not being creative. We're not questioning anything. And we're not putting anything new into the world because we're so afraid of making a mistake. We would never walk if we uh, adopted that mindset as, as a toddler. Perfect uh, example. It's a known fact that uh, if we continued being as tenacious uh, throughout our lifetime, as we were in trying to uh, learn how to walk, the sky is the limit of what we could be doing. It seems to me that somehow we know as a very young human baby uh, being 
that unless we learn how to walk, we will never be able to participate in all the wonderful things that we think everybody else is engaged in. So we absolutely want to walk. And we do. No matter how many times we fall, sooner or later, we walk. If we could do the same in terms of other aspects of life that are important to us, no matter how many times we think we have failed, we have only learned, we haven't lost, we have actually gained. Yeah. We gained experience. Sooner or later, we are going to ride that bike. Yes. And we're not going to fall anymore. Oh, we may fall off it, but it doesn't matter because um, practice makes progress. <laughs> Have you ever seen old documentaries about the Wright brothers and the early attempts of flying? I Everybody mean, those said it wasn't possible. Yeah, and those aren't stunts. Those those are real. This is live coverage of the some of the very first attempts of humans flying. And it looks like uh, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. <laughs> and today we have these planes that are flying at very high altitude with ease. Why? Yeah. Well, because we have learned as a, as a society what not to do and all the mistakes to avoid. And you can only find out what's a mistake once you've made it, right? Yeah. And then you make a note of it. You make a checklist. You say, oops, uh, mistake number five and mistake number 10 and uh, mistake number 50. Don't want to do this. Don't want to do this. Yeah. Don't want to do this. The rest works. Yeah, I agree. And and I, I, I encourage anybody who's, who's listening at the moment. I know we've had some um, lovely comments in the chat um, already the best happiness powerful very powerful if you have any comments please post them in the chat below but um ha harold um i'd love to know what advice would you give to anyone who's really struggling with finding i'm not sure if that's the right word finding happiness after a loss what would your advice be because i know you've shared so many uh, stories in in this podcast with regards to your personal experiences and your families. In my work as a mentor, after I turned about 40 years old, I also started coaching and mentoring people. Not because I had a, some kind of license, but because I felt that I had learned a whole lot that I could pass on to other people if they wanted and if they were courageous enough. I cannot, on my little mobile, I cannot see any of the comments, but I'll just do a little promotion here. If you feel that you want to be, that you want to have a mentor, that you want to have a coach to find out who you really are, warts and all, like my friend Paulette in Britain likes to say, words and all, if you're not afraid of the truth, but you really want to know who am I, what is in my toolbox, and what can I actually do with it, uh, get in touch. I'll be happy to have a chat. Uh, because there, I would also tell you what I'm telling you now. I have always believed, and I have felt like that as a teenager, myself without knowing 
that this has been said so long ago already. I had some incredibly bad teachers that did not spend any time at all in making you motivated about what you were supposed to learn. They would just come in and they would leave again and it was either eat or die, you know. Uh, enjoy maths or don't, but I'm not going to, to explain to you the joys of mathematics. And I'm sure that many of you have had the pain of not having teachers like that yourself. Mm. Like, uh, I love uh, writing in English. I think that the English language in many ways is much more poetic than the German language, which is my mother tongue. And when I was 17, I was a failing student in English. Can you imagine? I was failing in English. It was just because of the fact that I did not realize and nobody had explained it to me, even though it was so obvious, that if I could communicate and understand in English, the whole world was going to be my oyster. I would be understood everywhere. I would yeah. understand people everywhere. And I could basically embrace the world, which you cannot do with German or French or any other language. Yeah. So whether we like the British, whether we like the Americans, whether we like the Australians or Canadians, it doesn't matter. It's just a question. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a fact. English has become a world language. Now, my professors were not able to relate that to us. But when basically because of an invitation by an American professor to uh, spend uh, some time living with him and his family and finishing high school in the States, and then going on to university, once I had that opportunity and I had gone to high school for half a year, I had to have a university English proficiency test to be admitted to see whether I was even capable enough in the English language. And by then I had already experienced that only after three months of living in an area where English is spoken 24 seven, I started thinking and dreaming in English. Oh, so yeah. that was fine. I wasn't, I wasn't translating my German thoughts into English uh, words anymore, right? I, was, I know exactly what you say, because I, I spent a year living in Germany. And so you're, right. the real shift is when you start dreaming in German. <laughs> exactly. Then you know that you're getting someplace. And so when, it, when I got the results of that test back, I can still show you because it's my diary. I had um, a success rate of 95%. Wow. Now, little foolish 17 and a half year old Harold from Austria, who was a failing student in English back home, all of a sudden had five points less than a total success rate in the English language. Yeah. Now, how, how can that be? That's a whole different story. I'm not going to get into. Oh no, I think it's. I think it it ties really back to what you mentioned is giving people a chance for happiness, that mm. opportunity to be the person that they want to be, to 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 excel in a way that they are able to excel without judgment, with, without constraint, without somebody holding you back, but actually having somebody to support you and lift you up on that journey to that next level. And acknowledging the fact that you're going to go through that circle, <laughs> that you have to hit rock bottom. <laughs> and that's, and that's some of the, 
and that's the character and the personality that some of my new teachers in America had. I've never experienced that before. Yeah. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I was friends with my teachers and they were friends with me. Yeah. And whenever I needed something, obviously I wouldn't uh, take advantage of it. Uh, but if, if I had wanted to, I could have. Mm -hmm. I could have called them in their spare time. I could have called them over the weekend and say, hey, uh, teacher, I have a question or I have a problem. It was a totally different experience of school and schooling than what I ever had before. Mm -hmm. And that gave me wings. That yeah. gave me endless motivation. And all of a sudden yeah. learning was fun. Yeah. I, I didn't learn for them, but I learned for myself with their help and with their belief in me. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to, I know we, we, I know we can talk for a really long time, but I'm just conscious mm -hmm. of your time and, and, and the need for us all to, to, uh, to close our day. But I'd love if you could tell um, people, how can they learn more about London Mental Health Week, A Chance for Happiness, the amazing events you've got lined up um, next week? Uh, and I, will answer, I will answer your previous question. What advice would I give people? Yeah. And obviously that advice wasn't meant to be, well, get in touch with me and I'll coach you. But I was getting on to the fact that I had learned even as a, uh, a teenager from own experience and then later I read the words and I got uh, goosebumps and shivers down my spine where I think it was Plato who said that he believed that you cannot teach anyone anything you can only remind them of what they already know so this is what has always worked for me when others reminded me of my capabilities that's when I blossomed. When others, through uh, focused questions, reminded me of the knowledge that I already had inside, but it was dormant, it was uh, unconscious, subconscious, that's when I found my answers. And they didn't give me the answers. I found them within me. They only uncorked the bottle, so to speak. Yeah. And I find that to be the most fascinating way of working with people. I have never been the kind of person and not even in mental health. We're not saying, well, I'm going to teach you and we have all the answers. First of all, no one has all the answers. If we had any answers, we wouldn't be in this state uh, of mind that we're in collectively around the world. We don't know why so many people are deciding to leave. And that's just a fact. We don't have the answers. But if we draw on the wisdom of the many, if we bring them together to exchange ideas and thoughts, which is our very purpose, mm -hmm. then we will find collective answers because we all know already what the answers is. We are just not aware of it. Mm -hmm. So when I coached people or even in, in group discussions, I love asking questions that lead people to finding the answers for themselves. And in that way, uh, teaching and uh, mentoring becomes very organic. It's almost like um, medicine that is uh, homeopathic, that's natural medicine. It cannot do any harm. Yeah. Because if these answers come from within you, from deep within your own well, then they are yours. 
And uh, if you follow the instincts that then are awa uh, uh, awakened in you, it's not that I have told you what to do, but you have actually found out what it is that you know you want to do, that yeah. you know you want to try, and the creativity that you would like to put into your own life. Mm -hmm. So during London Mental Health Week, for the first time, and not just for a few days, but for a whole week, and with the help of many wonderful people and British charities that are already established for many years who are supporting us, uh, we have come to the point where we can actually offer a whole week's program of learning and exchange and uh, coming together under a common uh, theme. And that is how can we, what can we do to experience better mental health and well-being, I like to add. Mm -hmm. uh, it, we have an exciting program. It can be found under the link uh, internet site www.achanceforhappiness.international. The program is still growing. We are very happy to have been honored to have one of our honorary patrons is the Lord Lieutenant of Greater London, Sir Kenneth Olisa. He will attend the closing session at Westminster Chapel in person. He will take the time that I thought I needed to uh, take for a official welcome. He will do that. I'm very happy for him to do that because uh, <laughs> I will have the closing statements anyway. And I think it's it's, it's just a grand um, vision that I see when the Lord Lieutenant of London, Greater London, opens the meeting and welcomes everyone in his Greater London area to this conference, to the closing session, celebrating everything that has been talked about throughout the week before and listening to the keynotes of amazing people that will follow that evening. And they will all talk about more or less in a TED Talk format of no longer than 10 minutes. They will talk about what they're doing right now, not necessarily what they have done, what they're engaged in right now, how they wish that things would change in the next year, not in some distant future, and invite those who are in attendance as well as those who are uh, joining in through live stream and uh, social media around the world, how they invite the audience to please help them achieve what they would like to achieve in changing conditions. Mm. And I'm really looking forward to that because I think it's going to be, it, it's not going to be talk. It's going to be from the heart. It's going to be what really inspires and motivates them and them asking for help because None of us can do what we're doing alone. And in the end, I will make a special announcement. Um, we are going to morph A Chance for Happiness into a much wider and far-reaching international global initiative, um, always explaining that when you have a broken leg, you call the Red Cross. But when you have a broken heart, who do you call? Ghostbusters? 
So there needs to be an organization much like the Red Cross. Mm -hmm. People can call in the future with ambulance and everything that we are used to that will help people come to terms with their moments of crises and not just receiving medication and not just uh, waiting, even if they pay for it privately, not just waiting typically six months until they can have some uh, talk therapy, but immediately when they need it, because in a week or two or three, they may already be so exhausted that they do not believe in having a future any longer. Mm. So we need something like that, that it's already been uh, founded on on the 3rd of September this year, on Lisa's uh, 27th birthday, as a birthday gift, not to her, but from her to the rest of the world. That's going to be my pleasure to announce. And with that, the meeting will be adjourned until next year, we will do a similar project again, probably in the United States. And uh, we invite everyone to please help us do what we're doing, not for ourselves, but for everyone uh, in this collective journey on this planet, which is not easy to live. It's simple in structure, but sometimes it's very tough to live. I think it's so important. I think we all have a chance for happiness, but we can't do it alone. So um, please do support Harold and his uh, chance for happiness um, activities that are going on next week at London Mental Health Week and further afield because it doesn't just stop there um, with the Red Cross for the heart and for the soul that he's setting up. Um, it should be a big heart, I suppose, maybe. I'm sure you've got your own logo that's being developed in support of it. But I think it's such an important topic and we all really need to come together for that. So do make sure um, you register. Harold, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I've, I know we can talk for hours and I really look forward to supporting you and all the work that you do during London Mental Health Week and beyond. Thank you. Let me just add before you go, after our meeting in London, having this beautiful food, we were talking about trauma and different points that I had uh, defined what trauma is all about. For example, that you can have trauma that's not even your own, but you have inherited it. It's transgenerational trauma. Trauma can also be the things that should have happened in your life that did not take place. Like uh, you thought that you should be loved and be well taken care of and be in a wonderful, beautiful relationship. And that didn't materialize. And that can be traumatic. So it's not always the things that happen. Sometimes it's also the things that should have happened that didn't, that Mm -hmm. can be traumatic. And then I asked you the question, but with all my research, I have yet to find a definition of how it all starts. I mean, after we say these are the different variations of trauma, but what is the definition of trauma? And as we were walking away from that restaurant, I still remember you saying, <laughs> well, trauma means 
is Greek. It means wound. And all of a sudden it went boom in my, my head. And I said, that's it. It's very, it's as simple as that. Trauma Greek means wound. I have a wound. You have a wound. We all have at least one wound. Yeah. So maybe we shouldn't talk about trauma so much because it's shrouding, it's veiling what we're talking about. Maybe we go back to the plain language saying trauma means wound. I have a wound. And I like that so much that I made it the theme for the closing session at Westminster Chapel. So the title for that most important meeting in this beautiful setting, a historic church, more than 200 years old, in an oval shape with balconies and everything, a beautiful organ. It looks really celestial. And I have no reservations about saying that that meeting will be holy. It will be sacred because what we are saying and talking about there comes straight from the heart from everybody who will be speaking. And the title is Trauma, Greek, means wound. I have a wound. Yeah. We all have wounds and I think it's so important we come together to help each other heal our wounds and talk about it. I'm really looking forward to being there on that on that day and uh, and supporting others on that healing journey. Uh, Harold, it's been such a wonderful conversation. Um, thank you so much for sharing your personal journey and that of your family and for using that journey to inspire others to have a chance for happiness. Remember, this show is all about brain health, unchaining your pain. You're not stuck with the brain you have. You have the power to make it better. And Harold has kindly been here to show us how. Thank you, Harold. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to like and share this episode and leave a review on my website or on Apple Podcasts. If you're looking for opportunities to optimise your brain health or unchain your pain from a past trauma, make sure you visit my website www.ruthmaryallen.com and use the code PODCAST10 at checkout to get 10% off all programs. And always remember, you are not stuck with the brain you have. You have the power to make it better. You have the power to unchain your pain and optimize your brain power and performance so that you can win back energy and time doing what you love. Mm -hmm.